in terms of regulation, but also in terms of encouragement, in particular to encourage uh, Islamic uh, financial uh, instruments. To help us understand the area tonight, we have two very eminent individuals in this field of Islamic finance. First of all, we have a very eminent uh, scholar, Sheikh Nizam Yaqabi, who's from Bahrain. Um, Sheikh uh, Nizam sits on a range of different Islamic banking Sharia boards, and he's going to help us to understand the relationship between uh, religion and its influence on uh, commercial developments. We also have Usman Ahmed, who is the CEO of the Citigroup Global Islamic uh, Banking. Um, and he's going to start off by giving us a presentation uh, on Islamic finance and to help us understand its role in modern global finance. Now, uh, Mr. Usman Ahmed is going to take about half an hour with his presentation. Then uh, Sheikh Nizam will comment and then we'll throw it open for discussion and questions. But first of all, uh, Mr. Usman Ahmed. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Professor Cranston. It's indeed a great pleasure for me to be here today. I would also like to take the opportunity to congratulate uh, Professor Ross on his recent appointment to the uh, uh, Court of Higher Appeals for the United Kingdom as a judge, along with Professor Blair, who was with us today for the whole of the day at a seminar that was jointly organized by LSE and the Harvard Law School. I would also like to thank both institutions for giving me this opportunity. Today's session is uh, broadly divided in two parts. Uh, we'll start with the presentation and do the Q&A as just explained. Both Sheikh Nizam and myself have attended the Euromoney Islamic Finance Seminar for the last two days, and we spent most of today on the uh, on this seminar that was organized by the LSE. So we will hopefully be able to give you the latest perspective, and we look forward to an interactive session. Let me start by giving you an overview of the main principles of Islamic finance, as well as uh, an overview of the market. Under Islamic principles, money is regarded as a measure of value and is not an asset in itself. What that means is essentially that profiting from the trade of money or lending is regarded as riba, which is not permissible. What is also not permissible is investment in certain prohibited industries like gambling, alcohol, tobacco, or entering into contracts that are purely of a, of a speculative nature. Under the principles of Islamic finance, what is allowed is to profit from asset purchase, sale, or leasing transactions, from trading of goods, or investment in Sharia-compliant enterprises, for example, real estate or other assets. What this essentially means is that investors are required to take the risk related to ownership of assets to generate a profit for themselves. For example, if a company wants to finance its purchase of inventory, it has two options. It can either go to a conventional bank and take a loan, or it can come to an Islamic bank, and if the Islamic bank finds the due diligence it's done to be acceptable, it will buy the inventory from the supplier, take momentary ownership of title of the goods, 
and hence qualify for the profits related to the sale of that inventory to the customer on a deferred payment basis. The deferred payment leg will essentially create the credit for the customer and for the, for the investor, the momentary ownership of title will give it the right to earn a profit on the transaction. What this essentially shows is that ownership of title is critical to, to demonstrate under Islamic finance that investors are investing in the real economy. It also shows that there is nothing stopping an investor in the Islamic market from participating in the same economic activity as conventional banks. And just because the Islamic bank is meeting the same customer need as a conventional bank doesn't mean that that activity is akin to conventional finance or that indeed the Islamic bank is not entitled to take security or third-party guarantees or use other forms of credit enhancement to secure its uh, effective exposure towards the customer. Now, with that background, we'll go into the market. The scale and scope of application of Islamic finance has grown dramatically over the last few years. There are some 525 estimated financial institutions today with assets under management of over $500 billion. The bulk of this money is domiciled in the Middle East and North Africa, and within that, concentrated in the GCC. As you will see that the GCC has been growing at the rate of approximately 40% per annum, whereas overall on a global basis, the Islamic industry has grown at about 15% per annum for the last several years. This growth has primarily been fueled by petrodollar liquidity. As we all know, oil prices have been at a record high for the last several years. There's been increased product innovation in the industry by the entering of new international banks who wish to be active in the region. They have driven the growth and innovation aspect of that. There's also a growing population of Muslims who are categorized as practical, interest-averse Muslims, people who will essentially prefer to take an Islamic product as long as it does not in any way compromise the functionality of the product or the economic benefits for themselves. The other interesting phenomena that we have witnessed and also benefited as institutions is how the demand for Islamic equity has been driving the growth of Islamic debt products. What I mean to say is that when an institution issues stock in the market, for the stock to be Sharia compliant, no more than one-third of that company's debt is allowed to be on a non-Islamic basis. So for investors who wish to invest in Sharia compliant equities, the only way that they can do that is if the company that they're investing in does not primarily borrow on a non-conventional basis. And hence, companies in turn that want to attract those investors have to borrow on a Sharia-compliant basis. Now, why is all this relevant? It's relevant in the current environment because, as we know, the Middle East is the most capital surplus region in the world. For investors that are wishing to diversify their sources of liquidity, they, they can tap the Middle Eastern market on the most inclusive way possible by structuring their financing on a Sharia-compliant basis. Islamic banking today represents between 25 to 30 percent of the banking system in that part of the world. Accessing this liquidity has become easier than before as Islamic structures have become increasingly standardized and the cost and time to market 
is now comparable to conventional financial facilities. Sukuk issues, which represent the Islamic equivalent of fixed income instruments, are now priced in line with the conventional counterparts, and the costs associated with structuring these instruments has gone down significantly. Moreover, in recent months, we've seen that more and more issuers from the Western world are looking to tap the Islamic market. That is because there's been a global credit squeeze, there's a financial crisis in the West, and the banks in the GCC have been largely unaffected. That's why we're seeing a greater interest in Islamic finance, even from corporations that are not really driven by Sharia motivations. Within the Islamic banking universe, the Islamic capital markets has been growing at the fastest rate. For the last three years, the compounded annual growth rate has been over 100% per annum. The first Sukuk issue was done in 2002 by the government of Malaysia. That was a $600 million transaction. Six years down the road, the annual issuance has boomed to $50 billion per annum. What we've also seen is that in addition to fixed income bond type instruments, there's been an increased move towards equity linked issuance in which investors have the option to either redeem the sukuk for cash or exchange their sukuk for shares of the company should the price for the exchange offer them a profit at the time based on the trading price of the shares on maturity. Islamic banking has not just been limited to financing transactions or investment products. It is also extended into risk management products through the use of derivatives. For example, investors that would like to hedge the currency risks associated with their investments have now got access to an increased array of Islamic derivative products structured as Islamic profit rate swaps or FX swaps. Examples of where these products have been used include a few transactions that have been done in the UK market. The Dubai Ports company recently acquired PNO, which is a British company, which was part financed through a $3.5 billion Sukuk issue. Also, a Kuwaiti-led consortium acquired 100% ownership in Aston Martin, which was also financed on a Sharia-compliant basis. And recently, the Grobner House on Park Lane was sold and financed uh, through a Sharia-compliant structure. We take a very quick overview of the Sukuk structure, which, as I explained before, is basically a, uh, behaves like a capital market instrument. A Sukuk is meant to be a security or a certificate which gives investors a share in the ownership of certain underlying assets. This ownership can be established through legal title or simply through a beneficial interest in the assets, depending on what the nature of the assets is and how it can be transferred into an um, issuer vehicle or a special purpose company. Diagrammatically, I'll show you the uh, sukuk structure for uh, what is called an ajara-based sukuk or a sale and leaseback-based structure. This is the most universally accepted and simplest structure that has been used in a number of previous transactions. The issuer of the certificates is the entity in the middle titled SPV. This entity acts on behalf of investors by declaring a trust in favor of investors. It will acquire legal ownership of certain assets through 
funding that it receives from the investors and then lease those assets. So the investors will fund the SPV. The SPV will use the money to buy certain assets on behalf of those investors. Once those assets have been transferred to the legal vehicle, it can then lease those assets back to the same entity from which it was purchased or to any other entity. The lease rentals that are paid to the SPV essentially serve the coupon payable under the Sukuk certificates. And this can be set on a floating rate basis every six months or every quarter or on a fixed rate basis as mutually agreed between the investors and the obligor or the beneficiary of the financing. At maturity, the assets are then sold back either to the same obligor or to a third party for a certain predetermined amount. The other option here is for the assets to be sold back for an exchange of shares of the company, which would result in a convertible bond or an exchangeable Sukuk transaction. Now, the certificates issued by the SPV can be listed on any international exchange. They are traded at a premium par or a discount, and they, they offer a growing secondary market. The reason why this is considered to be one of the most versatile forms of Islamic finance is because the certificate represent units of ownership of an asset and hence can be traded in the secondary market, which is a, a welcome change from some of the more traditional structures where investors had to uh, take a hold to maturity view on their investment because they could not uh, sell the receivable-based instrument that they owned. Uh, to put this in the context of, of the real world, uh, I'll just share with you a case study on a uh, recent Sukuk transaction that Citigroup has led. This was part of a $3.25 billion financing package that we structured for Dubai ports. The transaction was done just before the uh, recent financial crisis in the summer of 2007. Uh, the issuer wanted to raise this amount of capital, and we advised it to tap into all possible sources of liquidity. So they opted for a 10-year Sukuk transaction alongside a 30-year conventional bond. Both transactions were sold globally across the Middle East, Asia, and Europe, as well as in the U.S. market. In fact, this was the first 10-year Sukuk ever to be sold in the U.S. market. Now, the pricing of this transaction was done in line with other single-A-rated issuers. It was priced roughly about LIBOR plus 115 basis points, it was listed on the London Stock Exchange and the Dubai International Financial Exchange. The underlying assets represented part of the port assets owned by Dubai ports in the UAE. Um, as you can see through the distribution pie charts, the Middle East uh, geography comprised roughly 36% of the order book. In total, we raised about $2.1 billion uh, as against the $1.5 billion required. There were 68, 68 investors in the order book, and uh, roughly about 25% from the U.S., 18% from Asia, and 21% from Europe. Now, if the issuer had opted not to do an Islamic transaction, as they did for the 30-year, then the Middle Eastern component would probably have been much less, and they would have had possibly got to pay a higher price because there would be lesser investors in the order book. Just to give you the comparison, the 30-year tranche had only 5% participation from the Middle East, as it was structured on a conventional basis. 
The other example which I'd like to briefly share with you is for a telecom startup company in Saudi Arabia called Mobiley. This is a subsidiary of the UAE-based uh, Etisalat uh, company. Mobiley was uh, Mobiley won the second GSM license in Saudi Arabia, and they needed financing to the tune of to, to the tune of three billion dollars. Now, our dilemma in this case was that as a startup telecom company, their biggest asset was intangible. It was the license, and the license could not be assigned or beneficially sold to any investor under the rules um, at, under which the license was granted. So the concept that was used here, and we worked very closely with Sheikh Nazam in developing this structure, was essentially very similar to a prepaid phone card in which investors bought in advance minutes of airtime from Mobiley, paid it the initial principal amount required under the financing, and then appointed Mobiley as their distributor to sell a certain specific amount or volume of airtimes over the next seven years, which was the period of the financing. And Mobiley has also agreed to pick up any shortfall in the distribution amount for every period, which essentially gives investors the comfort that their investment will be redeemed over the period of time that, that was set for the, for the financing. So this, is, this transaction paved the way for Islamic financing to be used in companies which do not have any physical assets, where investors cannot get legal ownership, or in cases where investors were essentially um, just looking to finance the service sector. Now, there are some mis misconceptions about Islamic finance which I'd like to touch base on and also talk about some of the current debates. Firstly, um, there's, a, there's a misconception that the lack of standardization from a Sharia perspective undermines the industry. Now, in this context, what we have to realize is that Islamic finance uh, is still barely 35 years old if you look at the birth of the first Islamic bank in the early 1970s. This is compared to, uh, this is a very short period of time as compared to the hundreds of years that conventional finance has been in existence. It's a rapidly growing and evolving industry, and that's where the role of students and practitioners and institutions like the LSE and Harvard Law School becomes very critical. It's important to contribute to the research and development initiatives and also to look at ways of enhancing and, and accelerating product development. Now, what is viewed as a lack of standardization is very often actually uh, a move towards innovation and a step forward for the industry. Because when Islamic financing started, the only product that existed was to take deposits, invest them in commodity-linked structures. And today we're talking about Islamic financing being used to structure global acquisitions and to, to finance multi-billion dollar uh, expansions in the region. So obviously, the scale and scope of application has grown dramatically. And every time there is a new structure that is developed, uh, the basic building blocks of that structure have to be arranged in a new manner, even though they're still based on the same uh, basic contracts of the Murabaha, the Ijara, or the Istisna. So that's why uh, sometimes the context in which they're applied makes it uh, appear as if the, this is something which is deviating from the past or from previously approved structures, whereas in fact, it's catering to a new need or a new dimension of the market. Secondly, what we frequently hear is that Islamic finance is uh, simply form over substance, whereas the reality is that under Islamic finance, uh, it's the contract that makes the difference, and the form is perhaps as important as the substance. 
the mere fact that it caters to the same end need of the customer is basically because Muslim customers have the same financial needs as any other customers. So just because we've structured a financing to meet that need on a Sharia-compliant contract or a Sharia-compliant model doesn't make it the same as conventional financing. Now, some of the issues that we're currently debating, and this was uh, covered partly in a very stimulating discussion today as well, is is the, cap, is the capital guarantee that is implied by the purchase undertaking that I showed you in the Sukuk structure, is that in any way contravening Islamic principles? And that basically stems from the question on whether Islamic finance has any room for debt-based products or is it only about equity-based products? Uh, we've discussed this at considerable length today, and uh, I think the broad consensus that came out, even though we didn't come to a conclusion, was that there is room for both debt-type obligations as well as equity investments in Islamic finance. It's not a question of it being debt versus debt or equity. The question is mainly relating to how that particular investment is made, how the debt-type obligation is created, and then depending on that, how it can or cannot be traded in the secondary market, which might be akin to trading, for example, conventional bonds. I'd like to stop here and uh, perhaps you know, start the Q&A session uh, after Sheikh Nizam has had the chance to make some comments. Thank you. Well, th those of you who came in late, uh, Usman Ahmed, who we've just heard the presentation, has had enormous experience in this area uh, in recent times, and uh, we've obviously benefited from the background. I'm now going to call on the eminent scholar, Sheikh Nizam from Bahrain, who has given uh, over 500 lectures and sermons on um, the area and who, as I said at the outset, sits on a number of boards advising institutions on structuring uh, uh, financial transactions so that they're compliant with Sharia principles to comment. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Professor for your introduction, and I also join in congratulating you on your new judgment assignedship. And although in Arabic we have a saying of the Prophet Muhammad who says that, peace be upon him, that whoever is appointed to a judge is slaughtered without a knife. <laughs> so we ask Allah to help you and grant you success, inshallah, in your rulings. And uh, I thank the uh, LSE and the Harvard uh, Islamic Legal Studies Program for inviting me to be with the distinguished uh, professors and colleagues and students and members of the public who are interested in these topics. Uh, I was told that uh, uh, it will be like an open forum and question and answer and uh, this is why I was not asked to prepare anything. However, I will comment a little bit on the 
role of uh, Islamic scholars, Sharia scholars, what they do in these uh, banking institutions and financial institutions, because sometimes we see confusion in, uh, in the public and in the writings and in the media about the role of uh, uh, the Sharia supervisory boards. The Islamic banking and financial institutions have a unique um, characteristics, and that is that they are required by their charters to combine between their financial and economic and business activities and between complying to certain rules and regulations related to business and finance from Islamic perspective. And uh, to do that, these uh, banks, financial institutions like um, they are not only banks now, they are funds, they are banks, they are investment banks, retail banks, uh, insurance companies called Takaful, and so on and so forth. Wide range of these, um, uh, what is called Islamic financial institutions. So when they claim that they are compliant in their activities, they have to substantiate this claim to the public, to the shareholders, to the account depositors, to the general public. So the, uh, the means for doing that till, till now has been through appointing these uh, supervisory bodies who are considered to be independent in most of these institutions, especially in Islamic retail banks and investment banks. They are appointed by the General Assembly. And they are not appointed by the management of the, of the institution uh, to supervise these activities. And uh, since the start of or the inception of this movement in 1975 or so till today, this uh, group of scholars have uh, proven to pass the test of time to, to show that whether these institutions are in compliance or not and how to guide them. What they do is that they review the articles of association, memorandum, all these the bylaws before the institution comes into existence. And if the institution uh, is found prior to that, then it will be reviewed and amended at the first meeting of the General Assembly. They also, what they do is to study the model contracts which is going to be used um, and in today's uh, activities, we also study the programs, the software which is going to be used and to make sure that it is used, for example, in retail banks in proper ways. They, uh, um, they work in close connection with the management, with the team, uh, with the financial engineers in developing products, uh, and it is always advisable to engage some of the members of the board right from the beginning so to, to uh, not to incur any costs and then at the end will be rejected and after that there is the supervision of the implementation of these rulings and these uh, fatwas so we have uh, pre uh, you know pre-operation and post-operation uh, supervision and also other activities to educate the staff the, the management the general public participate in workshops, forums like these, lectures, and also to issue responses to the questions, fatawa, to, to the constantly uh, um, increasing questions coming from the general public or from the staff or from the practitioners 
with regards to these activities. So these are, in a nutshell, some of the uh, you know very important aspects uh, that the Sharia supervisory boards do. What they don't do, and this is the area where some people raise confusion, they think that they interfere in investment decisions. This is not true. This is not our activity. We have nothing to engage in investment decisions per se. However, only the, the, from the transactional point of view, whether this investment is permissible or not permissible. However, we do not say that you give extend credit to this and don't extend to that, and uh, you should do this business and not that, that business, and so on and so, and so forth. We have nothing to do with these activities. These are the sole responsibility of the management in a, in a, in a professional and uh, due diligence course of business which any financial institution does, uh, whether it is Islamic or whether it is conventional. I will stop here to allow our distinguished professors also to comment if they like and then for your general questions and answers. Thank you. to ask the panel possibly uh, Usman who just finished his talk with the statement on the, on the uh, transparency there. Does the capital guarantee implied by the person undertaking contravene Islamic principles? I was very puzzled by your comments that the fact that there is a capital guarantee meant that it could possibly still be an uh, equity product. If it's a capital guarantee by definition it must be dead. Surely. Okay. Uh, In other words the sukuk with these purchase undertaking are not Islamic to conclude. So we've got another question over here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, actually, I was just reading about these uh, recent concerns that have come up, even by some of the eminent scholars, about sukuk uh, bonds, for example, and I read that Aufi is actually considering that at the moment. So is it any particular type of sukuk bond, like you mentioned the Ijara-based ones, or, uh, or is it about all of the sukuk bonds? Could you highlight that a bit? Hi. Um, I was thinking since uh, a lot of Islamic uh, finance products have uh, similar net payoffs to conventional finance uh, products and also you can't rely on uh, petrodollars forever, how would you think uh, Islamic banks would uh, grow in the future? Thank you. Well, let's take one more up the back. Uh, we see uh, sukuk and bonds, and when we see pricing for sukuk, and especially the benchmark, it is still uh, actually dependent on the LIBOR. When we talk about a sukuk and we say LIBOR plus 100 basis points, which really makes it more closer to conventional bond pricing. So do we have anything in process or research going on to develop an Islamic benchmark to actually use for pricing? Okay, well, let's, let's take those 
four questions.
which offers halal or haram Big Macs and they cost the same and taste the same, then they will just queue up for the halal one. And the last question was in relation to the use of LIBOR as a benchmark. That is something which has been there uh, for a long time and uh, you know it is sometimes confused as actually uh, equating to taking interest itself. Um, as I think you understand, uh, you know, it's a benchmark which is used as a means of measuring performance or returns. It's not ideal, but it is being used primarily because there is no other global index or benchmark today that can give investors the same uh, linkage to the kind of credit risk that they are expected to take uh, for pricing these instruments. So, you know, if there was, for example, theoretically, if the Islamic Development Bank came up with a benchmark that was based on some sort of a, uh, index linked to the performance of the OIC countries, then that could be used in some of those countries, but it may not then facilitate the sale of those instruments in, in markets which don't recognize that benchmark. So the Dubai Ports transaction, for example, would only happen if international investors can relate to how the risk related to the ownership of assets can be compared to a conventional uh, return benchmark. And that's why it's incorporated. It's more, I think, of a doctrine of necessity than anything else. And perhaps Sheikh Nizam can also comment on that. Well, I will start with the benchmark. I think, uh, I don't know, it was 10 years or 15 years ago, I keep uh, forgetting now. Uh, here in this university, in this school, esteemed school in the LSE, I challenged the young students and I said, please come up with a benchmark which is not LIBOR-based. Uh, so that is your role here, the students and the, the young generation of financial engineers and those who are studying these subjects. We, you know, uh, encourage them to come up with benchmarks which are, but these benchmarks must be acceptable and universal. Like, for example, if I tell somebody, please solve the traffic problem of Dubai, so he says, use helicopters. You know? <laughs> this is not a, a solution. You will not win a prize for that. So you have to come with a viable solution that I can, I can use it. So when I say somebody to invent uh, or to come up with an innovation in benchmarks, I mean something which is doable, usable, acceptable through the international financial uh, markets. But if you come up only with a benchmark that is confined to one group or one country or one category or even one religion, uh, the, the, the others will not accept it and then you cannot trade with it, you cannot use it, you cannot, you cannot benefit from it. So this is the challenge of the benchmarking. However, it is only as a measurement, as Brother Uthman said, and there is no harm in using uh, a scale of measurement which societies know and 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 uh, and accept even though we don't we dislike it i have said in other places that uh, you know this libor is like you know uh, a bad mean ugly husband or wife you have to live so if you are a lady husband if you are a man wife uh, so you have to live with her because you have children or with him because you have children. So, but what you can do, you have nothing, you have no choice, uh, although it is disliked. So it is disliked, but uh, a person cannot uh, 
let go for many reasons. Uh, the, as with regard to the issue of capital guarantee, uh, our, uh, the questioner asked about whether that will turn it into a debt instrument. And these, inst I mean, the capital guarantee is not the proper word to use, in my view, in these structures. Maybe the better word to describe it is capital protection. So there are means uh, to mitigate some risks involved in these structures. However, there is no capital guarantee per se, meaning that if you give me one billion, I guarantee to return the one billion for you with the returns. This is the conventional contract of uh, a, an extended loan, a bank loan, of something like bonds, these things. In these structures, there is nothing implied or not implied like that. However, they are attached sometimes with purchase undertakings. Now, these purchase undertakings can be from third party, then of course there is no issue, because it is a third party. But if it is undertaken from the same party, the, the same seller or the issuer of the sukuk, then it might be here viewed differently by different scholars. I am not saying that there is unanimous view of all our scholars. However, it is the view of many of the contemporary scholars that have designed these sukuk that that will not, because it is an undertaking to purchase the assets, not the units. So if the assets do not exist, for example, there is total destruction, there is no undertaking to purchase anything. Then you have to resort to insurance and all these things. Now, as we know, it is allowed to mitigate these risks through insurance or takaful or these things. However, it is not a guarantee. The insurance company might be, go bankrupt. <laughs> the insurance company might dispute the claim, might not settle the claim fully or partially. So there are many ways to argue that it is not similar uh, to uh, the bond structure, both from legal and from financial risk aspects involved in them. Let's take some more questions and comments down here in the front. Thank you for these wonderful presentations. Um, I think I have a bit of an obvious question. How is the global credit crisis affecting Islamic financing right now. Thank you. I think there's another one up here. Thank you. Um, my question is about the present home, Islamic home financing as it is introduced for the Muslim uh, house buyers. Uh, they consider the Bank of England benchmark to determine the rate of repayment. So do you consider that the Muslim buyers are better off at par or worse off uh, with those borrowing through conventional mortgage because does it impose greater conditions at higher cost to the disadvantage of the borrower? This is my first question. My second question to Sheikh Yahubi is, is a salaried person on teaching or research, does Islamic finance offer it more tools and opportunities or less? So in case he cannot buy bonds or uh, put stakes in uh, stocks so is he left off with even lesser options? Thank you. I saw some hands yes, up here. Thank you. Um, my question is to uh, 
to the Sheikh. Um, I think uh, I definitely agree that it's the responsibility of, of the young people and practitioners here uh, to, you know, to come up with solutions and uh, develop benchmarks, etc. But just on, on the point that uh, Usman made of, of uh, Muslims being a market of um, you know, people who queue up for the, Mac, the Big Mac, whether it's uh, uh, halal or haram, I mean, sorry, if it's halal, if it tastes the same and costs the same. So my question is, what is the responsibility of um, the Sharia scholars? Uh, in terms of ensuring that we head long-term in this direction uh, to, you know, stop the current economic violence and achieve um, at least what I understand as uh, economic justice through Islam. Thank you. And then further up and then down the front. Uh, given the recent dislocation in the credit markets of the con conventional debt markets, do you see that Islamic financing could be a viable uh, source of financing for non-Islamic issuers pursuing international M&A, and in particular, have you seen a leveraged buyout which has been financed with, with uh, Islamic financing so far? Thank you. Um, hi, I just have a question about the role of the Sharia scholars. The chair has mentioned um, a couple of times that Sheikh Nizam sits on multiple Sharia boards. And I was just wondering, does this have any inherent advantages or does it pose potential conflicts of interest? And if so, do you think as the market develops and more qualified Sharia scholars come into the market, that future companies will have their own exclusive boards? Thank you. Um, let's, I've got more, but let's take these and then we can have maybe a final bracket of questions. So get your questions ready for the final. But we'll see how we go in terms of time. I'm going to ask uh, Sheikh Nizam uh, to start. <coughs> Uh, I will respond uh, briefly to all these uh, queries because of the shortage of time and also to allow uh, our, our brother Uthman to respond. With regard to the global credit crisis, there is no doubt that we live in a global area and anything which affects the entire global economy affects everybody. And uh, nobody can live now in an isolated island as you know, news and uh, finance and travel and everything is so, you know, rapid and, and, and fast that you cannot control these things anymore. As they say, we are all in one village. So, however, even so, the effect on Islamic financial institutions has been to a lesser degree. Uh, and that is because... Uh, uh, the nature of Sharia contracts are such that they do not allow the pure trade and debt and securitization of receivables. So uh, that is one of the reasons that these institutions were protected, sort of. Like we in Bahrain, we have the certain institutions that they have Islamic desks and they are in their self-conventional institutions so their, con their Islamic desk <laughs> didn't suffer anything, but the conventional part of it suffered heavily. See, if, um, you know, things like uh, institutions like GIB, ABC, and so on. So because from the conventional side, they had exposure to that market. From the Islamic side, there was no exposure at all to these markets. So... That's an obvious, very clear example on how this crisis 
might, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> affect or not affect. Uh, the uh, home finance and the cost of home finance, I think there was a time that uh, uh, the so-called, you know, uh, CBM, you know, cost of being Muslim, you know, you, <laughs> you had to pay a little bit more to to eat halal food or, for example, to get your home financed in Sharia compliant way because it was in the initial stages and always pioneers take the hit in the beginning. So this is always the case, for example, here there are Islamic financial institutions, banking institutions who are pioneering the legislation, the regulatory you know, aspects with the regulators here. So they are paying the costs. So those who will come later everything will be ready, you know, so that it will be easier for them. So that happened, but I think there is research, uh, there is research which was done by uh, groups like HSBC, Amana, and other people about, exactly about the, the costs of home finance, and they showed that the, uh, what is available in the UK market, precisely, which you, have, you are asking, uh, for the Muslims to, to finance their house acquisition, whether through ijara or through murabaha or through diminishing musharaka, the most favored model now, which most of the uh, housing institutions are using, the diminishing musharaka model. Uh, so uh, they found that we are in the middle, you know, not in the most expensive and not in the most the, the, the cheaper the cheapest. So it is in the middle, but also that reflects the quality of the service which is given. In Arabic we say, there is a saying, they say, if you want to marry a beautiful girl, then you shouldn't, you know, uh, you, shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't say that the dowry is too high. You know, so you have to pay the dowry. So, so, you know, the, the dowry will be expensive. So that is, a, but uh, this is the research which is there. It shows that things are leveling uh, out now and there is competition. And this is natural because when there is monopoly, when there is a small segment, there is no economy of scale, uh, there will be such pricing elements. However, once we go into competition, into economies of scale, at that time, then the price will go down. This is natural forces of market which happened, and uh, we cannot interfere directly in it. You know, the, some people came to the Prophet Muhammad and they told him, you know, you must price, price the items. You must control the prices. Don't, uh, don't leave the merchants, you know, uh, using us. So he said, Sallallahu Allah. He said, the one who controls the price is Allah, not me, not the government, not the state. So this is an offer and acceptance, supply and demand, all these things. Unless there is, you know, proof that somebody is misusing the trust, somebody is taking advantage of certain dire needs, certain, dire, certain goods which everybody needs. In these cases, it is allowed to interfere by the state and to control the prices. Otherwise, in normal circumstances, uh, Islam very much encourages free trade and free uh, uh, market. The uh, salary, uh, is somebody who has salary has lesser options? I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. 
there are many options available now in investing. There are equity funds which are Islamic. There are uh, what is your retirement scheme here? Gold ISA, what they call it here? I don't know something like that. You can invest in these uh, stocks. I think they call it ISA or something. There's, you know, even these are available from Sharia point of view, and uh, there is a children funds, you know, to save for children. Uh, from Sharia uh, uh, comp- uh, compliant ways, there are real estate, real estate funds, and many many types of. Uh, also, if you want, uh, uh, like a deposit, bank deposit, uh, uh, it's available also from Islamic point of view. The responsibility of Sharia scholars in implying economic justice. You know, this this debate is a very old one. You know, the economists in the beginning when they were writing the Islamic economists in the late colonial period and early after independence at that time in the late 40s and 50s, uh, their vision for Islamic economic system was something which is comprehensive. The vision was, uh, you know, the social justice, equal distribution of wealth, all these things. Now, uh, that is... However, this is not the responsibility of one group. It is the responsibility of the entire state, of everybody, of scholars, of, of lawyers, of rulers, of uh, judges, of ministry, all ministries of the state from the Islamic perspective. So the Muslim traders, the businessmen, they said, okay, but this might not, ha- might not happen. So till when we shall wait until this happens? So, you know, but we want to trade now. We want to buy, we want to sell, we want to transact, we want to import goods, we want to export goods, we want to finance houses, we want to finance properties. So, shall we wait till all this utopian thing happens, you know, something, everybody is equal, and, and so we have to do something. So this is the Islamic banking movement started with lay people, with commercial, with commerce people, with business people, and some scholars, they started this movement, and they didn't claim that they are going to alleviate poverty or eliminate poverty or do this or eradicate poverty. No. They said we are trying our best to deal, to transact, to make trade, to make business, to make our financial efforts in a way that does not contradict with Sharia. But we do do charity, but we are not charitable institutions. We are profit institutions generating. We have to pay profit to the shareholders at the end of the year. We have to pay profit to the account depositors, who is me and you and all the others. So this should be very clear about this matter. Um, uh, Leverage buyouts, maybe I leave this to our brother Uthman. He is more knowledgeable than me in, in, in this item. Although by nature the word leverage by out, you know, how is the leverage done? See, if the leverage is done in according to Sharia, it's possible to do. But if the leveraging is done according to conventional means and methods, then it will be very difficult. Uh, Multiple Sharia boards, the last question. It is true that uh, there is a shortage of uh, scholars who are specializing in Islamic banking and finance. And uh, the reason for that is that the growth of the industry is so rapid that it is very difficult to cope up. And uh, governments and uh, educational institutions have only recently, you know, taken notice of the importance of this field, although we have been arguing for this for more than 20 years. 
We have been asking colleges of Sharia and Islamic law to introduce syllables on Islamic banking and finance. Also, we have been asking the colleges of finance and economics to introduce, because we want both economists and financiers who are knowledgeable, who have some basic knowledge of Sharia and these matters, and we need also Sharia scholars who understand money and banking and finance. So the problem is when you talk about global scholars who have the global, you know, connections, the global view, who can read English, who can read legal contracts in different jurisdictions, in common law, in civil code, in American law, and so on. And uh, uh, you want them to also understand monetary issues, finance, banking, etc. And uh, over above Sharia and Islamic knowledge. So these are in shortage, it is true. We need, we need more, but many countries have taken the initiative to develop such things, Malaysia, and, uh, and Bahrain, and uh, Sudan, and uh, even in Saudi Arabia. For example, uh, uh, in the last five years, I have tracked about uh, uh, maybe 200 PhD dissertations related to Islamic banking and finance only in Saudi Arabia. Only in Saudi Arabia. So there is lots of things coming, but it will take time. It's not easy. Uh, to come. Uh, about conflict of interest, no, I don't think there's, it is like lawyers, like auditors, you know, they serve multiple institutions, but they have confidentiality contracts, they have ethical, you know, uh, uh, standards, and all these things. Similarly, the Sharia scholars work within that scope. I'll just briefly comment on the uh, global credit crisis and its impact uh, transactions. I would say that uh, we've seen uh, both positive as well as negative uh, implications of this. Negative because a number of our transactions got either cancelled or postponed uh, in the last quarter of 2007. Uh, particularly one transaction which was uh, meant to be a $2.5 billion deal uh, and required not just Islamic investor participation but also conventional investors to come into the same deal as we saw it like in the Dubai Ports case. Uh, that could not get done uh, because uh, at the time the conventional market was extremely flaky and uh, you know the pricing that we were getting was just too high for a high investment grade rated issuer and we in fact advised them uh, to cancel or postpone the transaction. They had other options. They could go to their relationship banks in the region and uh, just get short term uh, bridge funding uh, which is what they did. Uh, on the positive side, uh, what we've also done is we've uh, looked at some transactions which were actually meant to be distributed in the conventional market, but the market was just not there for those deals, and we uh, restructured those transactions on a Sharia-compliant basis. We took some additional security, and we were able to successfully place those deals uh, again in the last quarter uh, in the Islamic market. So to a certain extent, uh, you know, deal flow has... Uh, been impacted uh, and you know on balance I think Islamic investors are still uh, very much open for business as Sheikh Nizam explained you know the very nature of their business meant that they were not there on highly leveraged uh, synthetic speculative sort of transactions uh, which has affected uh, a lot of other conventional institutions uh, there has been some LBO or leveraged buyout activity in the market particularly three transactions done last year are worth mentioning. Um, just for the understanding of, of the broader audience, uh, leveraged buyouts are essentially transactions which are done uh, with high leverage
to finance the acquisition of a particular target or company and frequently the acquisition debt is done uh, partly at the level of the holding company which will own the uh, the company once it's acquired and partly uh, the debt is pushed down at the level of the company where the operating assets reside um, now we saw three transactions one was the acquisition of the egyptian fertilizer company by an islamic infrastructure fund uh, that was done successfully uh, again in in the last quarter it was uh, structured on a sharia compliant basis because the infrastructure fund itself is an islamic fund and it could only invest in uh, assets that were acquired through sharia compliant means of uh, financing the second transaction as i touched upon earlier was the aston martin acquisition uh, that was again uh, essentially an uh, lbo transaction uh, the third transaction is the acquisition of centurion energy which was a canadian listed uh, oil and gas company um, by a, by a client of ours in the united arab emirates uh, city financed that acquisition uh, initially through a 470 million dollar bridge and then we did uh, a refinancing of that bridge uh, through a uh, sukuk issue which was exchangeable in, which was convertible into shares of dana gas so that was again uh, a leveraged deal in the conventional sense that it had a high component of non equity based uh, financing okay let's take some final questions if i remember taking down here start with yes um how do you attract conventional banking customers towards islamic finance what are your unique selling points towards uh, non muslims basically and person next to you no okay and um i think you had a shot earlier let's have some at the back sir uh, my question is what advice would you give to potential uh, future em- uh, employees like our students how should we enter the islamic finance um, uh, system should we go into conventional banking gain experience or should we go and study sharia what would your, your advice be thank you I believe that Islamic financing is based on profit and, uh, and loss sharing. So I just wanted to know that uh, when uh, you finance a firm, it's based on profit and loss. So I just want to know that uh, what is the difference between uh, the bankruptcy cost under Islamic finance and under conventional banking? Because then bankruptcy cost decides uh, the opt- optimal structure of a capital firm, of a firm. So I just wanted to know what's the difference between the Islamic finance, uh, bankruptcy cost and the Islamic finance. Okay, up here, yes. Um, hello. Um, my main question is about the four teachings in Islam. So how does this um, four differences help or harm the Islamic finance industry? And what does the future hold for these differences? Thank you. Could you repeat? I didn't understand your question. Um, there's four main teachings in Islam. Huh? Four main teachings in Islam. Oh, you mean the madahib. Yeah. Oh, yes. So what, how does these differences help or harm the industry? And um, what does the future hold? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Right Hi. Uh, my question is to Osman. Um, much like uh, the Islamic banking industry, the wealth management and private banking industry has recently 
taken off quite a lot. Um, you mentioned at the end of uh, 2007 you had uh, 500 million US dollars worth of assets under management. What fraction or percentage would you say come from ultra high net worth private clients? Or what, I mean, how much comes from institutional investors? And what's the difference? Where do you get most of your market share? Uh, my question is, um, what's your view on having a sort of a central regulation body, for example, the way they have it in Malaysia? Um, is that an idea that's going to catch on in the GCC countries? Yes, am I correct in assuming that uh, this is mostly a Sunni-based, uh, the typical investor is a Sunni? And uh, as this business grows in scope and money, and as it puts more, more money into charity, will the Sunni Shia uh, rift widen as a result of this? I'm going to give this chap another bite of the cherry, as we say in English. Um, I was reading uh, the, an historic judgment on Riba by Mufti Taki Usmani, and he said that. The, the matter of uh, the, like the stomach finance perspective towards indexation, that's something that needs to be further looked into. Could you please tell me a book or a paper I could read about the perspective on indexation? Could you highlight that, highlight that yourself? Okay, any final questions? Uh, oh gosh, okay, well I can see three hands. Uh, I can see four hands. Let's have four questions very quickly. We'll start there. Uh, hello. I recently visited many Islamic banks and institutions in the Middle East, and uh, I found out that uh, some of them would accept the concept of wa'ad promise or double wa'ad. Uh, meanwhile, others would not con consider them to be Sharia compliant. So my question is, uh, when are we going to have a standard in the market in the, within the Islamic uh, banks? Thank you. And then right up the right back. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, my question or comment is regarding LIBOR, use of LIBOR. In, uh, in all the programs we attend, we normally get this question, and the answer is somewhat like we heard today, with a good example today. So, uh, uh, but every time, sometimes we are uh, either we are explaining use of LIBOR, but even not liking it, or we are putting the responsibility to someone else, scholars or students or state. Uh, can today someone from LSE, a student, create a blog or a group with, with, with the title of like uh, alternative of LIBOR? And then in all our programs, whenever this question comes up, we refer to that blog or group, and the comments are added there. And gradually, we, we might find things. And, and on the other side, definitely as the asset market grows, we will have more Sharia-based indexes uh, and, and, the, uh, and the, the sukuks and assets which, which, which can be used. Because we will need uh, an index in, in, in all the countries, not only in UK. LIBOR is in UK. We need uh, uh, an alternative of Euribor, alternative for US. So two, two things should go parallel. One is the market forces. Second is the the research work which we can refer. Maybe there's something already existing, but I don't know. So, uh, okay, let's Thanks see. Thanks very much. Someone down the front. 
Um, I was just wondering, I mean, a lot of the Sukuks, et cetera, that have been issued, but also on the kind of B2C market, have been done in um, areas where taxation is either low or non-existent. For it to grow into, shall we say, other jurisdictions, what are the tax implications, specifically with the EU, and what complications does VAT throw into the mix? A final question. Anyone? Oh, yes, sorry, down the front. Hi, yeah, thank you. Um, I was, I'm just wondering about Islamic finance and the environment. Uh, are you participating in these new financial products uh, or are you participating in carbon trading? What do you think of the carbon market? Do you assess products in terms of their environmental impact? Thank you. question was uh, what can be done um, to attract conventional bank customers towards Islamic financing or what is the unique selling proposition of Islamic institutions? I guess this question has two aspects to it. Um, if you're talking about the financing side, then um, you know anybody who wishes to convert in his existing borrowing from conventional to Islamic would first of all be more conce most concerned about making sure that it, he has continued access to capital. He's not paying more and he's not giving more insecurity. And that is a general approach to structuring Islamic financing, that you know the customer should be no better or no worse off in terms of uh, access to funds or ability to access other markets apart from Islamic financing in future. All the deals that we've structured generally uh, are structured not to contravene existing uh, covenants that they may have signed for conventional loans so that if required, if the Islamic market is not there for some reason and somebody wishes to borrow on a non-Islamic basis, then they have the flexibility to do so, even though it's not desirable from a Sharia perspective. Uh, pricing has now generally uh, come to a level where it is priced in line with conventional benchmarks because most Islamic facilities have participation from both Islamic as well as non-Islamic investors. So they have the, they have the same uh, return criteria for the risk that the transaction entails. If you look at the investment side of things, on the other hand, uh, I think most people uh, are still experiencing a shortage of investment alternatives that are structured on a Sharia-compliant basis. A number of new products have been introduced, as Sheikh Nazar mentioned, there are Sharia-compliant mutual funds based on uh, Islamic equity screens developed by Dow Jones and, and some other institutions. City has developed a Sharia-compliant uh, Sukuk index, uh, which uh, is basically tracking the returns of a number of um, uh, you know, Sukuks that have been done in the market. Somebody could structure a product which gives uh, returns linked to that portfolio, which would be akin to a fixed income bond index in the conventional world. Uh, similarly, there are other products like structured investment notes, uh, capital-protected equity-linked notes, uh, which are structured on a Sharia-compliant basis. So there are options, but still, uh, you know, uh, leading on to the, in fact, second question, uh, there is still a, a very large pool of liquidity which is, uh, you know, lying in conventional products, particularly in the private banks, uh, for lack of a credible Islamic alternative. Our estimate is that the private bank market is roughly about 15% uh, of the total Islamic assets under management. But there is perhaps an equally uh, equal amount, if not larger, lying in conventional current accounts or conventional uh, Swiss bank accounts, which could potentially be converted into Islamic financing or Islamic investment products if, if a good enough 
uh, alternative was offered to these investors. So there's still significant scope for conversion of some of these uh, sort of, you know, uh, products from, from conventional into their Islamic equivalents under proper contracts uh, that are Sharia acceptable. Now, uh, the other question was, uh, one of the questions related to bankruptcy costs uh, under Islamic finance. Uh, any Islamic contract is uh, not just governed by the principles of Islamic finance, but also by the law of the jurisdiction in which the issuer and the, the investors are based. So uh, bankruptcy-related uh, treatment of these contracts and, uh, in fact, uh, legal recourse of these contracts is very similar to uh, what happens in the legal system generally in that particular country. Uh, there, have, there has been uh, case law established in which, uh, you know, the courts of England, for example, have uh, ruled that uh, the nature of the obligation uh, that is established is uh, no more or no less than what would happen in the conventional banking system. So the legal framework would still apply uh, for the country in which the uh, issuer or the company that goes bankrupt is based and the treatment of those contracts would be done in a similar way under that same legal framework. Um, I think I will also uh, take a crack at some of the other questions related to uh, tax implications of uh, Sukuk structures. This is a very important uh, subject and frequently whenever we go into new jurisdictions we have to uh, grapple with a lot of uh, tax and regulatory issues as it, which arise as a result of the transfer of assets uh, either within the same jurisdiction or from one jurisdiction to another. And uh, an example of that is when we did the uh, first Sukuk issue out of Europe, out of Europe for the German state of Saxony-Anhalt. Uh, they used their, actually by coincidence, they used their tax office buildings as the underlying asset. And uh, those assets needed to be transferred uh, to an issuer SPV in the Netherlands for the structure to be tax neutral. Uh, you know, if they, were, if they were transferred to an SPV based in Germany, then uh, the state in this case would have had to pay uh, some federal taxes. Uh, in some countries, this issue has been resolved, uh, and, you know, indeed, UK has also introduced tax legislation which uh, equates the uh, Islamic capital market structures to their conventional equivalents from a, from a tax point of view. Uh, Singapore has done the same, Malaysia has done the same, and uh, in most of the GCC countries, uh, this is not really an issue. Uh, on, the, on the point regarding uh, Islamic finance and how these institutions are, are dealing with environmental issues and participating in some of the uh, issues related to, you know, the carbon theory, etc. We've, uh, you know, like international institutions are governed by the same principles. So, you know, if you're participating in an initiative uh, on the conventional side, which is linked to the environment, then we follow the same guidelines and policies on the Islamic window as well. Um, this is generally an institution-specific question. You know, some of the local banks are still not aware of these issues, and they are perhaps not as proactively participating in them. Uh, but the policy is driven by uh, the individual institution itself. Uh, it's not a general approach in, for the industry as such that we can point towards. Uh, let Sheikh Nizam comment on uh, 
these questions as well as some of the ones specific to Sharia? Uh, <clears throat> a general observation which the issue of tax brought to my mind is that those uh, brothers, you know, and uh, some scholars who ask that, you know, why these uh, sukuk and these instruments and these financially engineered products are not exactly resembling some contracts of fiqh, you know, thousand years ago or so exactly. So this is an issue because, see, now you have laws, you have taxes, you have other issues. So you have to, when you design something, you have to comply with all these things. And sometimes in not one jurisdiction, but also in many jurisdictions, multiple jurisdictions. So some people, one, one, one uh, brother criticized the creation of SPVs. He said, why you are putting so much SPV? These are all fictitious companies. I told them, this is not our requirement. It's the requirement of tax. The requirement of the legal institution. So that should be taken into consideration also. When, because people want to also be tax efficient. Uh, quickly to the questions. The non-Muslims, how to attract them? Well, good service and competition, like anything. And uh, of course there is evidence that there are many, uh, because Islamic banking is not only for Muslims. It is banking done in compliance with Sharia, but it is open to everybody and everybody is welcome. Uh, but if you want to attract people, then good service and competition. Uh, in Malaysia, there are many Chinese communities who participate. In, uh, for example, in Dubai, we shifted a bank. It was a conventional bank, and then we shifted it to an Islamic bank. Most of the clients were non-Muslims, and they remain uh, still till today and because they give them good service and good uh, uh, co competitive uh, rates with others. Advice for students. Well, those students who are not from the Sharia background, lawyers, finance students, business students, banking, and I advise them to uh, encourage them to take courses in Islamic finance if available. There are tests now like the Islamic qualification test available even in UK here, Islamic finance qualification test and so on and so forth. Those who are from the background of Sharia, I advise them to concentrate in understanding modern legal systems and uh, improve their linguistic uh, capabilities to read different languages which are important in modern finance and also to in increase their knowledge of, uh, of finance and uh, basic you know, financial engineering tools. This will be very helpful to them if they want to enter into this field in the future. Plus, uh, read a lot of cases, like any lawyer, good lawyer, you have to read the, you know, precedent cases. So you have to read the fatawa, which is available now, many of them are available online, the Islamic banking rulings and fatwas and verdicts and responses. Many of them are published and available in different languages. Sheikh, our colleague, Sheikh Yusuf Talal de Lorenzo, has done an excellent job in uh, translating three volumes, the compendium of the uh, Islamic finance fatwas. It's in three volumes, and the texts, the Arabic text and the English text are, you know, jointly together there. So you can read both Arabic and English. So it's also a, a good uh, exercise in your Arabic, if your Arabic is not your mother tongue. Uh, with regards to financing on profit and loss and bankruptcy, bear in mind that uh, to finance a business, it's not necessarily that always you finance it through profit and loss. You can finance through sale contract. 
you can finance through lease, you can. So there are many ways. The profit and loss, this is the, if you mean mudaraba or musharaka, that is one of the modes. But there are other modes which at the end will, will create a debt instrument. And then you can be paripasu in bankruptcy with all other debtors, whether Islamic or conventional at that time. So this is one. Madahib, the different schools of Islamic law, whether they are four or whether you mean the, the more general, the four Sunni madhabs or the more general other madahib like Shia and Zaidiya and Bahiriya and Ibadiya, all of them we consider them as a, a very rich source for us. Because in modern uh, uh, fatawa, in the, the, the modern Islamic fiqh academies, uh, they do not depend on one single madhab in ruling in modern issues. You know, these madahib are, you, you can stick to them if you are using on your ritual, on your salat, on siyam, on zakat, on hajj. There is no harm. Everybody can stick to his madhab. There is no issue. But on, on matters which affect the entire ummah, the, the, the global community, a single madhab is too, too narrow to comprehend and to cover everything. And this is why the practice of the modern, the collective bodies of, of ijtihad, of rulings, modern rulings in, in medicine, in uh, social ish, issues, in, uh, in, in Islamic finance issues, all these things is to benefit from this, all of this literature and not to go against any precise texts that are there in prohibition. So what they use in these fiqh councils like OIC fiqh council is not talfiq, meaning patchwork, just take from here and here and here. No, it is what they call ikhtiyar. It is based on you know, sound reasoning and choice and preference among these opinions for what is to the betterment of the Muslim Ummah and what is uh, what will, will, will successfully uh, you know, generate more preferences and masalih to the Ummah. <coughs> Are we going to see central Sharia board, supervisory boards in the Gulf like Malaysia? Some countries they already have like Bahrain for example. It is not meant to regulate everybody. It is meant to help the central bank. It is meant to help in resolving disputes. Even in Malaysia, the Central Sharia Board did not eliminate, did not eliminate the single Sharia boards in other institutions. They, they are all there. So, uh, so some countries might take uh, this uh, uh, thing. Wa'ad and standards. When there are standards like Awafi standards, the matter is not in issuing the standards. The matter is in implementing the standards. So the implementation of the standards, the scholars cannot force governments. It's by the choice of the governments, parliaments, governments, central banks. So the regulators, the duty of, of implementing the standards and making it the law of the land is, is, is the duty of these regulators. We cannot. We, we have designed the standards, we made research, and we issued the standards in AWOFI and other institutions like IFSB. However, the matter of implementation is not in our hands. It is in the hand of government. If the government today in Bahrain or in Kuwait says that AWOFI standard is law in Sharia, not only in accounting and auditing, then finish, it becomes law. So that is a matter of implementation which we cannot control. The, 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 question, the important question that uh, our young student here or, um, has mentioned about Sunni versus Shia. 
and that Islamic banking is mostly a Sunni phenomenon. Uh, this is not true. Uh, uh, Islamic banking is not a Sunni phenomenon. It's a universal Islamic phenomenon. Uh, countries, even countries like Iran, have laws against usury and against riba. And uh, uh, however, they had different models, and now they are trying to come closer to standards. Uh, uh, one of the earliest book about the banking system and Islamic banking system by, by, was written by a pioneer Shia scholar, Sheikh Muhammad Baqar Sadr. So, Al Banker Allah Ribawi fil Islam, non riba or non interest based bank in Islam. Very pioneer research, very, very one, of the, one of the earliest researches in the field. And uh, I sit in many Sharia boards where our Shia uh, brothers are uh, in, in these boards with me, in Bahrain and other institutions, in, in Takaful, in banking, in both in retail banking and investment banking. So uh, the, the rulings are very, very similar. Uh, there are very few uh, areas where there are disagreements. And these disagreements is not because Sunni and Shia. It is because difference of opinion which exists even among Sunnis sometimes in, in, the, in the laws. So there is no such thing as dichotomy between Sunni and Shia in Islamic banking and finance. Plus, uh, you must also understand that shareholders of Islamic banks, takaful companies, are both Sunni and Shia. Depositors in, in, in banks, uh, Islamic banks, they are both Sunni and Shia, so they are all benefiting. Uh, charity, uh, the, the, the charity which is directed in these banks is not directed on sectarian basis, it is directed on need, it is directed, for example, based on government uh, um, permission or regulation if they have about which society is uh, accepted or not accepted and which uh, charitable institution is, is regulated or they have audited accounts and what is the need of the community. So it is not uh, distributed on basis of sectarianism. The last question about uh, environment. Uh, we are very much uh, happy and we, we are encouraging to work with groups like ethical investors, sustainability groups, uh, socially responsible groups, green groups, other, other religious groups. Now I hear there is a Hindu index of Dow Jones stock also. So we are very uh, happy to work with all these you know, groups and to join forces in uh, bettering our societies and our environment and our... As for carbon, uh, I, I was one of the first, uh, I gave a ruling that uh, carbon credit can be a subject of, can be an asset class and can be considered as a subject for sukuk also. So it is there, and, um, but uh, there were several uh, uh, attempts to have a carbon sukuk but I have not seen yet anything taken to the fruition, you know, level. I hope one day we will see some. Thank you. Well, this is very much a joint enterprise between the LSE and Harvard Law School, but actually most of the work is done by Dr. Nazim Ali, who's the director of the Islamic Finance Project at Harvard Law School, and I'm grateful to him. I'm also grateful at the London end to the work that Hussain El Khatib does as well. But because it is a joint enterprise, I'm going to ask the uh, director of the Islamic Legal Studies Program at Harvard Law School, Professor Barbara Johansson, to um, say a few words of thanks to our audience. Well,
actually thank, first of all, the NSE and Professor Cranston for uh, hosting us here and bringing a number of uh, great uh, specialists in the field together for a days of discussion, which turned out to be extremely fruitful. Uh, my second, uh, my second uh, thanks go to the public uh, to come here at the, in the late evening and to be so uh, engaged in the discussion that we have uh, questions going uh, until eight o'clock is an achievement. It's, uh, it's a performance to which, uh, for which I'm extremely grateful. I'm grateful, of course, to uh, uh, Nazim Ali, who is. Uh, doing a wonderful job in the, in the uh, program. And uh, I mean, you have all seen the marvelous way in which uh, Sheikh Nidam has introduced you in answering your questions into one of the more complex, most complex fields in which uh, the modernization of the Islamic uh, way of life uh, takes place in the field of finance and economy. Uh, it is uh, a field in which uh, the modernization of the contract law, the uh, modernization of investment doctrines, the modernization of the Islamic economy as a system, thought, thought as a system, take place in uh, often in, in discussions of dissent. And that continues a thousand years old tradition in Islamic law where new forms have always been found in dissent and schools are based on dissent with other schools. Um, and I think he, we all enjoyed having his very lively way of answering your questions and, um, and uh, to show us that this is a field in motion uh, that uh, he represents with great expertise and perspicacity and in which you took such a lively interest that I think that we all ought to thank uh, Sheikh Nizam for the wonderful way he did it.